as artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing. They're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is supported by Trustonomy, an original podcast from OneTrust. Every good relationship you have, personal or business, it involves trust. But we all know that trust doesn't just happen, right? We've all lost trust in a friend or a brand or a product. Trustonomy is a new podcast that looks at true stories from the past to understand how trust works and what makes it stronger and how to rebuild it when it's broken. Now, you know, I'm a sucker for a good podcast that weaves historical stories and relates it to what's happening today. So I thoroughly enjoyed this Trustonomy episode and recommend that you check that out as well. Search for Trustonomy in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Many thanks to the OneTrust team for their support. Today on the show, I am incredibly excited to welcome Jitu Patel, the Chief Product Officer and Chief Strategy Officer at Box. We talk about building a product team and integrating progressive technology into an enterprise product like Box, the risks and rewards and how they actually go about making that decision, which is incredibly fascinating for anyone building technology today. So this is a good one. You're going to want to take out your notebook and get ready for our interview with G2 Patel of Box. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. In season four of Rocketship, we are diving into everything product and growth. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We're your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belsito. Thanks so much for, for joining us today. I, I'm curious, tell me a bit about your role. Um, what does your day-to-day look like as the, the chief product officer? 
So thank you for having me, firstly. And uh, so there is um, the good news about a product role is no two days are the same. <laughs> right. um, and so uh, uh, my, I don't really know what my typical day looks like, but my responsibility over here is to basically uh, lead product and strategy at Box. Um, we are now about a um, you know $500 million business, roughly, um, and growing at the 25 to 30% clip with about 76,000 customers, 56 million users. And, um, uh, you know, we've got a fair number of different kind of products that we now have in the market. We went from a single product company a few years ago now to having multiple products. And so my goal, my uh, job is to primarily steer the ship in the right direction, uh, working very closely with Aaron and the product team uh, in and specifically making sure that we're solving the right problems for customers that are going to have meaningful kind of discontinuous leverage in the long term. So one of the things I wanted to talk about was building those those product teams. And now that you're working on several different products, what does the hierarchy look like on each of those those teams? And how do you structure um, pulling the resources together for each of these products? Yeah, I mean, we we try to keep a pretty flat organization um, rather than having too many kind of layers of management. Um, and the way that we've organized our teams is very much around um, a customer centricity. So um, our key, we think of ourselves as serving three key stakeholders. Um, you know, the end user first and foremost, um, who is different from the buyer typically in an enterprise. So the buyer tends to be the enterprise, the CIO, and then the enterprise IT admin and the security and compliance professionals. So that's the second persona. And then the third one is developers who can use our APIs to build things that we might have not imagined. And so what we've done is we've actually broken our teams in that kind of structure as well. Uh, and our the, the there's some core philosophies that we try to be pretty diligent about maintaining within the company, which is um, as the business scales specifically, like one of the things that we are all pretty paranoid about is how do we make sure that we remain agile and uh, not get disrupted just like we disrupted our, uh, our competitors. Um, and the way to do that in my mind is uh, to ma- make sure that you can maintain small teams. And as your business grows, you can have many, many more small teams, but don't try to have the size of teams grow to be too large because then most of the time is spent in coordination rather than actually getting work done. So one of the, you know, like we really take to heart what Jeff Bezos at Amazon talks about, which is this two pizza team concept where you should have a team no more than can be fed with two pizzas. And we, uh, we do that over here where we tend to have this kind of notion of a pod um, where, you know, there's uh, the teams are no, no larger than eight to 10 people. And they've got a multitude of different roles from product management to, you know, we have this concept called P-Pod where you have um, each each letter in that word stands for a particular role. So P for product management, E for engineering, A for analytics, um, um, and then P for program management, which is different from product management. Because typically you find that people that are good at creative thinking aren't the ones that are good at keeping the sh- trains running on time. And so we try to, you know, there might be like four humans that know how to do that, but for the rest of humanity, you need to make sure you split, split those roles out. And then we have uh, O for online growth and then D for design. And we tend to have some kind of combination uh, with varying numbers, depending on the kind of project there is of this kind of peapod concept. 
but um, our teams tend to be small. And then what we do is we we t- try to focus on having local missions for those teams. So you as a big company can have many priorities. Uh, in fact, it's impossible when you get to our size and scale to have like one or two priorities. But what what's extremely important is that every team has a local mission with you know one key metric um, and one key priority, maximum one or two. But the moment you go beyond that, it's very hard for teams to execute effectively. So um, you know, so, uh, so one is have small teams. Two is make sure that the composition on the teams is with the right kind of people. Three is you know we are massively obsessed on making sure that the team is focusing most of the time up front on picking the right problem to solve before starting to build features. And I think this is one area where in um, uh, in tech we've got it wrong, where you know you tend to uh, lead from a feature first perspective rather than you know working backwards from a problem standpoint. And so, uh, and you know, my belief is um, the quality of problem you pick to solve is directly proportionate to the caliber of people that you attract to the problem. And the harder the problem, actually, the higher the likelihood of success because you'll attract a much greater talent pool. And when you attract a great talent pool, your probability of success is pretty high, which is completely counterintuitive. Um, you know, and so those are the three or four things that we keep in mind. And the last one I'd say is just the kind of people that we tend to hire. Um, I tend to um, have a overemphasis on, um, you know, three things. One is hunger. I think there's a lot of things you can teach people. You can't teach people hunger. So, um, you know, we feel like you have to have people that are hungry. Um, The second area is just innate curiosity or why the world is the way it is and the, um, the level of comfort for challenging any assumption. And then the last one is just netting it out to the core essence and first principles and having, you know, simplicity. One of my, one of my mentors in the past had told me great leaders are simplifiers. And so um, what we try to look for in, in our teams is leaders who, are, who can just net it out and simplify things to the core essence. You mentioned um, picking a problem. I'm wondering if you can give an example of how you might express that to the team? How, how do you verbalize what the problem is uh, that their task was solving? Yeah, I'll, um, I'll give you an example. So every product team that we have will, um, will come in with a strategy uh, that says this is what the team's charter is and the mission is. But the first thing that we look for is what is the key problem that we're solving? And the way we think about the problem is, are we creating a vitamin or are we creating a painkiller? Because it's nice to have a vitamin, um, but if um, you know it's not critical to someone's needs, and it just is, a, it's a, it's a nice luxury. Whereas a painkiller is something that you can't live without. And we tend to be in the business of going out and solving the hardest problems that tend to be painkillers rather than vitamins. The vitamins are nice, but the painkillers are where you should be putting bulk of your effort in. Um, and so then you start thinking about it as saying, okay, is this a problem that is recognized by the customer to be a problem for which they feel like this is the time to go out and solve the problem and they would actually pay money for that problem? And once we have all of those pieces, you know, and we've kind of identified the, the, the gravity of the problem uh, and we think it's big enough, uh, then we go out and start building a product. And the way to market validate 
is uh, th this is one other area that you know people get wrong in product, which is you go out and ask your customers what the solution is that you should build. In fact, what we try to do is just ask customers about the problem that they have that we're looking to solve. And then it's our job to come back to them with a solution that we're going to build to solve that problem. It's the old Henry Ford, right? <laughs> if you ask them what they want, they'll tell you a horse. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, sometimes it's not even, um, uh, you know, as, as stark as that. But what, what you might have is a lack of context from people because of which the solutions are just not as, uh, you know, customers are immersed in their problems, but they're not immersed in the solution that you should build. So you should always talk to people about the area that's their domain expertise, which in my mind for customers is the problems. They are very acutely aware of the problems they have. and They'll tell you in no uncertain terms if that's a problem that's a big enough one or a small one, if you ask the question in the right Yeah, way. we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Now... Back to the show. I'm curious. You, you also mentioned um, innovation and, and continuing to, to not be disrupted. Um, so the small teams is is one way that that you keep you know keep on your toes. Is there anything else culturally that you do that that fosters innovation inside of the the product teams? Yeah, we we actually have this philosophy that we use, which is this notion of um, you know ten uh, xing the capability for uh, the market and the, the thinking over there is if you build something that is not at least 10 times better than what the existing solution is, chances of you being able to motivate um, a customer or a user to move over to you is pretty small. You know, so 20% improvement on some, some way of doing it, the existing, the inertia is so strong that you just won't be able to motivate people from moving over to you. So how do you then think about innovation at a 10x? Uh, the, the nice part about this 10x rule is it makes it very easy for what problems to focus on and which problems not to focus on. Because let's say you found a really big problem, but the solve that you have is only 20% better than what, uh, what might currently be available in the market. Don't bother with trying to solve the problem. You know, um, it's, um, it isn't as, uh, it's not going to have the level of traction and potency as it would if you um, if you were going out and doing something that was 10x. The other piece that we look at that I think Box is particularly good at. This was something I learned over here, and you know, a credit to um, Aaron and team on this one, even because they were good at this even before I came. Is identifying what the mega trends in the market are, and figuring out a way to use those as tailwinds in your business. So, for example, when we started this business, cloud and mobile were big megatrends. There was no doubt that workloads were going to move to the cloud. People were going to start using mobile. Those were massive disruptors. And so if we constructed our business to make sure that we could take advantage of those properties of the, of the market rather than trying to fight against them, um, you actually get a lot of, you know, um, you know, propel velocity on that one. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and so that in today's day and age, that is, um, uh, you know, AI and ML is a classic example of that. And I'll, I'll give you one kind of last rule that we think about over here in innovation is we try not to do anything ourselves um, from a build perspective on a product side that we don't think we could be the best in the world at building. Like if it's just something that is a capability that, that is a, um, that's important to have, but not something that we can bring our core competency that makes it the best thing in the world to build. And if we didn't build it, the world would not be as, as nice a place. 
those are the only things we try to focus on building. Everything else, we try to focus on partnering. And I feel like this mistake gets made a lot by companies where you, um, you don't think about it from a partner-first lens. And the reality is anything that a partner is very capable of doing that can just provide you with um, you know, increased velocity, you should actually work with a partner and only focus on the things that you're going to have a discontinuous leverage in the market because of your you know, structural advantage as a business that you might bring to the table. You know, and so that's how we think about the features to build versus partner with. This this reminds me a bit of like uh, Netflix, you know, offloading their storage to Amazon at a certain point in their history. Is there an example at Box um, that that kind of points to the same where you guys have partnered instead of built? Yeah, I mean, we. I'll talk, in fact, storage is a great example. Most people kept thinking we were a storage company for the first eight years of our business, and we kept saying, no, 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 we actually are building value above the storage. Uh, the only reason we built our own data centers initially is because the data centers were not mature enough for the enterprise workloads, you know, 12 years ago. But now that they are, uh, in fact, we we can run on Azure's data centers and, you know, uh, we use Amazon's and we, we have a bunch of kind of cloud providers, public cloud providers that we use. And that's because the value for us is not in going out and creating the most scalable data centers. That problem has been solved. Uh, four times by four really amazing companies, which is Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and IBM. So we should use all of them as partners in making sure that we leverage them and then just build the value on top of that. So that was an area where storage is not a strategic component, but an essential one. So we should make sure that we use whoever provides the, the most efficient storage. And one of the things with storage is your cost curve is asymptoting to close to zero. And so people kept thinking about our business and mistaking our business, saying, well, you're going to get commoditized. And the reality is our unit economics on the gross margin are actually one of the best in the industry, even though storage has consistently dropped in price over the course of the past decade. And that's because we've actually focused on building value above the storage components. That was one example. The second one, which is really pertinent right now, is we just made some recent announcements is around um, um, you know, AI and machine learning, where in certain cases, for certain use cases, there's a tremendous amount of innovation that is already happening with machine learning, with companies like, uh, the, with the four companies that we were talking about. And wouldn't it make sense to actually utilize all of that investment? That's billions of dollars that they are spending in making sure that they can perfect certain kind of um, you know, algorithms. And what we wanted to do was make sure that the algorithm is only as good as the data set it's applied to. We actually have one of the, our customers have trusted us with their data where our, our revenue, you know, our customer count grows at about 10% a year. Our revenue grows at 25 to 30% a year, but our data doubles every 12 months. And so wouldn't it be nice to have, um, you know, all of the power of innovation that these ML providers are bringing and um, bring it to the content that our customers have put in box so that you can provide them with kind of, uh, uh, you know, very, very uh, different kind of experience with their content. And so uh, AI and machine learning is another area where we've partnered where it made sense. And in some areas, we have to build our own algorithms uh, because it wouldn't make sense to partner in those cases, in which case we do. Mm. So to talk to me, I, I definitely wanted to touch on on AI and machine learning. And, and I'm curious, when a new technology like this comes along, how did you approach it um, as an integration in, into Box, right? How, how, what kind of research did you do? And, and when did you know that it was ready to be integrated into the, the core product? 
Yeah, and I, I, I tend to think more about it from a customer perspective, from a customer problem perspective than a technology. So the, if you think about it, I've been in this industry for longer than I'd care to admit, but you know, the one thing that's um, happened uh, during my, like e- even when I got out of college and first got into my workplace, there are certain things that haven't really changed about the way that we consume content and work with content within the organization, um, within the workplace. And, you know, there are some things that, you know, boxes help change. Like, for example, you can get your content now on any device, anywhere. You don't have to be tethered to your office. You can be on an airplane or you can be in a car and you can pull up a document on your mobile phone. And, and then you can share it with someone seamlessly inside and outside the organization and apply, you know, security, governance, compliance, all of those things we've solved. Um, what we haven't solved, though, is I still think that there's a fair amount of friction uh, in the way that people have to consume unstructured content. For example, um, you consume unstructured content by, you know, searching for content. Once you open up a piece of content, you might go to page 47 on that content and then look for an exact answer of what you're looking for. Rather than saying, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I could just make a natural language query um, to my content and the uh, system is smart enough to know that I have security for this. Um, and based on that, it'll give me an answer. And rather than give me, giving me a document, it just gives me an answer. Right. Um, and that's the ultimate vision. And all of those things weren't possible until a bunch of factors came together. One, you had to have all the content in the cloud. Two, you need you needed to make sure that uh, algorithms for machine learning had gotten advanced enough. And three, um, you know, there had to be some kind of mechanism for uh, integrating the algorithms with the content that was in the cloud in a seamless manner in a way that manifested in a really easy to use user experience. And now that we've actually got a fair amount of innovation that's happened with, you know, we now, literally are seeing that it's less about people contemplating whether or not to move the workload to the cloud. It's a matter of how quickly and which workloads are they going to move to the cloud. And ironically enough, the reason people wouldn't move their workloads for unstructured content to the cloud five years ago is because they were concerned about the security aspects of that. And today, in fact, some of our customers are moving the most secure workloads first because they think that the security posture in the cloud is much stronger than that it is on-prem. So you know that the content's moving to the cloud. We have tremendous amount of you know, innovation that's happening on machine learning algorithms where, in fact, certain use cases, um, the accuracy rates of these algorithms tend to exceed human accuracy, you know, whether it be on um, things like image detection or um, you know, voice transcription and all of that. They're actually in over the 90% range. So you're starting to see that there is a fairly good amount of um, you know, innovation happening on the machine learning side. And tying those things together seemed like it made a lot of sense. That would solve a, cost, a problem in a way that was 10x better than what the market had today. And that's what we've tried to do is in every area. So we've, we introduced this kind of product line called Box Skills, where you could literally take any image that you have or any video or audio and automatically extract metadata by applying an algorithm to it rather than manually doing it. And so imagine if you had a digital asset management repository of all your images as a marketing department, and you only wanted to look at images with a green background that had a tennis ball and a tennis racket um, and, uh, and a person playing tennis with New Balance shoes on it. We can literally now go out and search for that image the moment you put it in because the algorithm could uh, automatically detect all of those tags and populate the metadata with it.
And so these were, you know, like very, very, uh, what, what used to happen in the past was you would have like floors and floors of people manually entering data and they still wouldn't be able to do as good a job with it. There was a lot of error rates and now you've been able to completely leapfrog the market with this. And it was done in a very elegant manner. Um, and because of all the confluence of innovations that it, the timing was yeah. the right time. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Now, back to the show. Yeah, that's so. What um, what are you excited about? You know, as these technologies progress, being able to do at, at Box with them. You know, our thinking at Box is a piece of content should be infinitely more valuable for a customer when they put it in Box rather than if that same piece of content was outside the box. And what we have to do, our job is to make sure that all of the world's innovations that happen that can add value to the content can be brought to our customers in a simple, frictionless manner that's completely seamless um, through a very open partner ecosystem. So in fact, what's fascinating about this business is some of our biggest competitors actually also end up being our biggest partners. And I think this notion of a zero-sum game where you know someone is your competitor, so you're not going to work with them is just simply the wrong way to approach this market where what you have to think about is if it's right for the customer, then you should set your own incentives aside and just do what's right for the customer. Um, And by the end of it, it actually ends up taking care of you in a far better way than you would have otherwise taken care of yourself. Um, And so we've uh, we've followed that philosophy. We now uh, integrate very closely with Microsoft, even though we might compete very heavily with OneDrive and SharePoint and all of those areas. Uh, we are, you know, very close partners with the Azure business. Uh, in fact, there's also a go-to-market incentive that their team has in, you know, taking Box to the market. Uh, we also have similar partnerships with IBM uh, and Google and Amazon. So, like, we are we're starting to find a tremendous amount of kind of leverage that can be had because we just feel like it's far too arrogant to think that all the innovation in the world is going to all center around what you end up doing. Like 90% of the innovation will happen outside of your company. And so we should always just, you know, uh, take advantage of that and, um, uh, and use that as a tailwind. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on today. Um, where can people keep up with you and, you know, obviously box, um, and, and the innovations happening there. Yeah, I mean, you can uh, definitely go to box.com. Um, and if you haven't tried the product, by all means, try it. It's free to use so that you can, um, um, you can um, you know, be more productive at work. And then for me, uh, we, I tend to um, share a lot of learnings around product and um, uh, how to run businesses and all of that. And, you know, Twitter is probably the best place. And uh, my handle is uh, jpatel41. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, uh, Michael. Thank you for having me. If you want to find out more about rocketship.fm, go to rocketship.fm. It's pretty simple, right? Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, so you don't miss future episodes in this series. And if you like today's episode, tell a friend. Or two friends, or a lot of friends. We would love it if you would spread the word. And when you can, go to rocketship.fm and scroll all the way down and leave your email with us. We'll let you know about upcoming episodes, but we'll also get you in on a Slack channel with thousands of other product people and all sorts of other good stuff that we know you'll be interested in. So go to rocketship.fm and sign up for our newsletter. If you enjoy this content, leave us a quick review um, or tell a friend or share the link on Twitter. Anything helps to get the word out about the show. We really appreciate it. We'll be right back here in just a couple of days.